0: chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. When we look at the story of Joshua and Israel, we think, there's a lot of great things that happened in the book of Joshua. And you know that's kind of nice, but God doesn't work that way in my life. You know last time I, did, I checked, I don't remember God taking my boss and moving him to a different state so that I could take over his position and get a great promotion. You know, I don't remember God dropping a huge pile of money on my front doorstep to take care of all my financial needs. I don't remember God doing some miraculous thing in my life, appearing to me in a dream or or something like that, like, like happened in Joshua. And even though God may not work overtly, that is obviously in miraculous ways, God always works faithfully. Sometimes he works simply in ordinary ways. In fact, in the book of Joshua, we saw sometimes where God used simple, ordinary means in order to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes that's the way God works. In fact, that is most of the way that God works. He doesn't primarily work in miraculous ways, especially in our day. There's not going to be a time when, when we have God show up and talk to us in a dream or appear to us in a burning bush or something like that. God is going to work through simple, ordinary means. And the reason sometimes we feel that God is not there, we feel that we are isolated, is not because that God has not revealed himself to us. It's because we have distanced ourselves from God. We have placed between us and him a barrier. And the only way that that barrier can be removed is through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's read in Joshua chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, And to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterwards I brought you out. I brought you your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your, your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who lived beyond the Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, when I destroyed them before you. And then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. And you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out. The two kings of the Amorites and from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built. And you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Today we're going to see that God can work in extraordinary ways. But most of the time he works in ordinary ways. But he always works Faithfully, that is, in faithful ways. In verses two through twenty-seven, Joshua lays out for us a covenant renewal at Shechem. And many people that that have uh, studied this passage have have seen that this passage is basically a treaty or a covenant that the people of Israel were setting up between themselves and God. And there's six basic elements to the treaty. The first element is the preamble, and that is. The introduction of the sovereign or the king. And we see that in verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. So this is their king, their sovereign, that they are making the covenant with. That's the preamble. Secondly, there's a historical prologue. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's verses 2 through 13. Joshua gives a history of what's happened to them. How God has brought them all the way to where they are right now. A historical prologue. That's the second part. That's that was um, that was an element of these treaties in their day. The third part was that they had in the treaty. Third element is a stipulation, and this outlines the vassal's consequent responsibilities in respect to their sovereign. We see that in verses 14 through 24. Next week we'll look at that, and that basically lays out for the people of Israel what their responsibility is. You remember. A famous verse in verse 15. Joshua says, listen, you need to choose yourself whom you will serve. Whether it be the gods of the Amorites whom your father served or, or the God of Israel who I serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then he lays out all the things that are expected of them. We'll look at that next week. So that's the stipulations or the requirements that is that were a part of this treaty. This, the fourth part is a written record. Look at verse 26, after Joshua had made this covenant with them, verse 26 says, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So what they would do is they would would come into this covenant relationship, they would make this covenant with their sovereign, in this case it was God, and then they would write it down. They would have a written record. Then the fifth thing was that they would have witnesses. Verses 26 and 27 tell us that they are witnesses to themselves. In fact, they also set up a stone that would be a witness to what they had said. This was a, this was a memorial that they had set up so that future generations would recognize that they had made this covenant between themselves and God. This was another way that, that they would remain true to their... Agreement to their covenant that they had made. In fact, we, we do this in our day when we um, take part in a marriage ceremony. We typically sit and watch the ceremony as a, a witness. We are a witness to what agreement has taken place between this man and this woman. And we are supposed to uphold that agreement. And when they start to stray from it, we should stand up, uh, obviously, in, in opposition. To it, because we were a witness to their covenant that they made between themselves and God. And then finally, the last element of, of every treaty in their day was was the element of blessings and curses. And we find this throughout, but you see it most clearly in verse twenty. Verse twenty says, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do harm and consume you after he has done good to you. So, God was going to uphold his end of the bargain. He, they needed to uphold their end of the agreement. So, what we're going to look at is primarily the historical prologue section. That is, we're going to look at Israel's history today, sum it up, and then see how God has been faithful throughout this whole time. And what that will do for us is that will be a good setup for us for next week. That is, motivation that we can have... For why we should serve the Lord. Because next week we have to make a choice. Are we going to serve the gods of this world? Or are we going to serve the God of Israel? And the motivation for why we should serve the God of Israel. Is because of what God has done for us in the past. That is the motivation that Joshua is giving here. In verses 2-13. through So we're looking at this historical prologue. And it's basically set up pretty nicely for us. Um, The first part of the. The, uh, the historical section here, talks about Israel's history from Genesis 11 to the middle of Exodus. And then it moves on and talks about um, the rest of their history and goes from the middle of Exodus all the way up until Joshua chapter 22, basically where they are right now. So the first thing we're going to look at is God's faithfulness in verses 1 through 13. God's faithfulness. Joshua begins by calling the, all the leaders of Israel together. He's going to communicate his message to them, to all of Israel, through these leaders. That's how he typically works. mean, obviously there are thousands and thousands of people he would have to talk to in order to get his message out. So instead, he, he appoints these leaders over the, each of the tribes, and then he speaks to them. So he calls these men's to, men together, and he reminds them of the faithfulness that God had, had uh, done for them. He talks first in verses 2 through 7 of the call of Abraham all the way to the Exodus. And he begins with the patriarchs of Israel in verses 2 through 4. The patriarchs, that is the fathers, the forefathers of the Israelites. Verse 2 Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river. Namely, Tira, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor. And they served other gods. So, here's the situation in verse 2. There were these godless people, people who cared nothing about God, the father of Abraham, Tira. And they lived on the other side of the river, that is the Euphrates River. They lived on the other side of the river, they were all on their own, and that was their situation. But then God intervened in verses 3-4. through God leads them out of that godless society, that godless um, uh, activity that they were involved in. In verses 3-4, through notice God's activity. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. So, as we go through this passage, what I want you to notice is all the eyes that are used. Okay, God, God is going to be saying throughout this whole passage, it was I who did these things. Look at what I have done. Okay, this is where you were. That's the situation. And then we're going to see what God did. I did these things. That's the intervention. You'll we'll see this in each section that we talk about. So, so God led Abraham out of, of this godless society, this godless lifestyle. He removed him from that place. In fact, in verse 3, notice what it says. It says, Then I took your father. Okay, Abraham wasn't just kind of sitting around saying, You know, I'm really sick of all the wickedness in this land, and I have to figure out something that works better. I need to find out who this God of Israel is. That's not how it worked at all. It says that God took him. He says, I took him out of that land. And we'll, we'll see later, when we, um, when we conclude this, this section today, we'll see that that is the way that God works in our lives as well. When we were sinners, we, did not, we were not walking around saying, man, I'm really sick of this godless society that I live in. I'm really sick of this lifestyle that I'm living right now. Where can I find God? Where can I find something that will really satisfy me? Somewhere where I can go and, and get atonement for my sins through perhaps Jesus Christ. We, we were not looking for God. Do you realize that? God sought us out. We, we've sung before, before I loved him, he loved me. God had to, to start that work of, an, of, of uh, salvation. He had to start it. He had to pluck us out of this godless society And draw us to himself. That's exactly what he did to Abraham. It was God's choosing. And then in verses 3 and 4 we see that God multiplied Abraham's descendants. Now this is one of the ways in which God worked in an extraordinary way. Okay, I said that sometimes God works in extraordinary ways. Most of the time he works ordinarily. But he always works faithfully. This is an extraordinary thing. You remember the story of Abraham and Sarah. They were old. Um, I believe Abraham was 100 years old when, when Isaac was born. and So this was an extraordinary thing. That God was going to give him many nations. Many nations will be born through him and yet this man is in his 90s and he still doesn't have one child through Sarah. And yet God provided that child in an extraordinary way. He Opened up the womb of Sarah and allowed her to give birth to this son Isaac. So that was an extraordinary thing. But then in verse verses uh, verses the end of verse three and then in verse four we see that God now works in an ordinary ways. In an ordinary way. Verse four says, To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I mean that's pretty ordinary. Nothing spectacular about that. And to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Nothing spectacular there. So God's working, but He's working according to His plan. Something that's going to work out for the benefit of Israel to this day. 500 years later, Israel would be a benefit of Jacob moving to Egypt. Now that seems like an ordinary thing at the time, but God was being faithful throughout this, and He was showing that He He, he was completely in control. And what we're going to see today is that God is in control... From the beginning all the way to the end. From the beginning of Israel's history, when Abraham was, was uh, pulled out of this godless society, all the way to where they are right now. God is faithful through all of it. All right, we turn to the Exodus in verses 5 through 7. I mean, stay here in the book of Joshua. I don't want you to turn to the book of Exodus. Book of Joshua. But in verses 5 through 7, we find out about the Exodus of Israel. And we see that they have been oppressed. Jacob uh, took his family down to Egypt. And uh, we find that Moses, in verse 5 it says, Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt. So the situation is that they are now, the people of Israel are being oppressed by these Egyptians. They have become their servants, their slaves. And they have to do whatever uh, the Egyptians tell them to do. But then we find that God intervenes. He says, I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt. Verse 6 I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And then uh, we see in verses 6 and 7 that they came to the sea, the Red Sea, that is. Egypt pursued them with chariots, and they cried out. But verse 7 tells us that I put a darkness between you and the Egyptians. You see, these, these, this activity, this activity of the Exodus, that took place, and then when uh, when God destroyed these Egyptians, that was an extraordinary thing that God did. God was working in an extraordinary way, and He allowed these people, without swords or weapons of any kind, to destroy this formidable formidable foe, uh, the Egyptians that were in power. And God used the sea. Verse seven says that I brought the sea upon them. And covered them, and your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. God was faithful. God had worked in extraordinary ways to accomplish his purposes, and it was all leading up to where Israel is right now, standing at Shechem with Joshua. Joshua was reminding them about God's faithfulness. In verses 7 through 13, we have the faithfulness of God from the wilderness. All the way to the conquest, and so the first part of that that we want to look at is verses seven through ten, and um, we'll see that the enemies that the enemies that Israel defeated on the east side of the Jordan. Remember, what happened was Israel came up and they are on the east side of the Jordan, and it wasn't until they crossed over the Jordan River that they began really their main conquest. But even Moses was over here on the east side of the Jordan, and they had to fight against these two Amorite kings. Sihon and Og. All right, let's look at verse 7. The end of verse 7 it says, And I gave them, I'm sorry, and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. So this was the wilderness wandering that was going on. So this is where they're at. They're, They're wandering around in the wilderness. They don't feel like they're really going anywhere. But then God intervenes. God gives the enemies of the Amorites into their hands. He leads them all the way up until the Jordan River. And he gives them possession of that portion of land on the east side of the Jordan. He says in verse 8, Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites. Verse 8, They, they fought with you, but I gave them into your hand. Now, this was probably some sort of ordinary uh, battle. This was not something where God uh, brought down the walls and allowed them to, to take part in all this confusion. It was probably just an ordinary battle where the people of Israel had to fight. And they used their swords and, and, and so on to, to destroy the Amorites. Verse 8 tells us that they took possession of the land only when God had destroyed it though. And then in verses 9 and 10 we find out about this king of Moab, Balak. Balak was a man who hated Israel. And so he called Balaam, a prophet, to come and, and bring down a curse upon the people of Israel. This is found in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. But God would not, accept their, would not accept the curse from Balaam. In fact, he turned it into a blessing. Look at verse 9. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You remember several times, Balaam went back to Balak, the king of Moab, and said, listen, I can't curse Israel. And he said, well, you have to. But you see, God intervened, and he he worked through this man, Balaam. And we find in in Numbers chapter 22, verses 11 and 12, it says, Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. This is Balak speaking. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. You see, God had already made a promise to to Abraham that his descendants would be blessed. And so he would not allow Balaam to bring this curse upon them. Now we come to verses 11-13 through and we see the conquest of Israel. The situation that Israel finds themselves in is that they are among a whole country full of enemies, full of people who hate God and hate them. And we see in verse 11 that God intervenes on their behalf. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite and the Perizzite and so on. then the end of the verse says, Thus I gave them into your hand. It was God who gave them into their, into their hand. It was God who was faithful. God worked in an extraordinary way. We remember several times when God caused the walls to collapse. When God made the sun stand still. When God brought down uh, hail on, on the enemies and killed them with, with the hail. When God brought confusion among the enemies. And we find out in verse 12 that it wasn't even by their own sword. It was by God's hornet. Look at verse 12. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites, but not by your sword or your bow. Okay. Now he's, he's going back. He's talking about the, the two kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og. And he's saying, listen, I'm the one who sent the hornet and destroyed them. Now what exactly is God talking about uh, through Joshua. He talks about this hornet that drove out the Amorites. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 3. There are several theories about what he could be talking about. Some people think that he's speaking of real hornets. But from our passage it says that I brought brought the the hornet, one hornet. So it would have to be a pretty big hornet if if that's what it was to drive out all these people. Or a pretty busy one, one of the two. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, with all the people, came out to meet us in battle at Edri. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered Og also king of Bashan with all his people into our hand and we smote them until no survivor was left. I want to stop there. Okay? Israel is saying that we killed them. We smote them. But Joshua is saying that he that God used the hornet to destroy these people. Turn to Exodus chapter 23. I think this is the best understanding that we can have of this idea of of the hornet. God was saying, listen, you think that you did it with your sword and your bow, but actually it was me. Okay? You, you may have, have looked at that situation and didn't recognize that I was involved, but I was. My hornet went before me. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, tell us what that hornet is. God says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among you who come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. Okay, look at the first part of verse 27 and the first part of verse 28. I will send my terror ahead of you. And then verse 28, I will send hornets ahead of you. This is the same idea. He's talking about the same thing here because he's talking about throwing their enemies into confusion. So, what God is talking about when he's saying that he will send his hornet, or in this case, hornets, ahead of them, it is that, that he will send terror upon their enemies. So, turn back to Joshua chapter 24. Because God's showing them that, listen, it seemed like this was an ordinary thing. That you were just destroying them with your sword and with your bow. But but actually, I was behind it. I sent them into confusion. I sent terror upon them. Fear, which they would not have had if I were not involved. They would have destroyed you, is what God is basically saying. God, God is, is explaining to them that, that they needed him. And just as... The feared hornets put the enemies to flight. So God's powerful force does the same. Verse 12 says, Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings and the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. Deuteronomy 3 said that we were the ones that smote them. We killed them. But God is saying, no, it was me. It was me who was behind it, because I work in extraordinary Ways You may have had victory, and you may have used your sword, but it was ultimately me who gave you that victory. And then verse 13 of Joshua 24, we find that God gives them the land of Israel. And he gives them great resources that they didn't even have to cultivate. Verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves groves which you did not plant. Not one time in Israel's history, Joshua is recounting for them, was God unfaithful to you? God was always there, whether it was in some extraordinary way, like when He destroyed the Egyptians in the sea, or whether it was in, a, in an ordinary way. God was always there, and He was always working. Faithfully So that is God's faithfulness that we see in this treaty that, that they set up between themselves and God. And now I want you to look at the end of the chapter. That is verse 29 through 33, verses 29 to 33. And I want to show you our response to the faithfulness of God. Our response to God's faithfulness should be faith in Him. Because God is, is someone who continues to pour upon, pour upon us his faithfulness, as we sang about. His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness never fails. Because he is that type of God, we should respond in faith to him. And what we have in verses 29-33 through 33 is three men who are uh, buried now. They, they die and are buried. And they represent, as part of Israel... What God demands of them, and that is faithfulness. The first thing I want you to see is in verses 29 and 30, and that is the faithfulness of Joshua. It came about after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance, in Timnath-Sirah, which is the hill country of Ephraim, on the north of Mount Gaash. Now we're not going to spend a lot of time unpacking what Joshua did. We've done that throughout this series Joshua was a faithful man to God. He recognized the great God that he served. And so, as a response, he led his people in faithfulness. And Israel responds in verse 31 with faithfulness. Look at, look at verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived, um, who sur- survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of which the Lord had done for Israel. Israel responded to Joshua's leadership, to Joshua's faithfulness, by being faithful themselves. Israel became a great nation. They received the blessing that they had from God. And Israel now had a land of its own. Look at verse 32, because I want to show you the faithfulness of Joseph. Joseph was one of their forefathers, but, but, they were, but the people of Israel responded. Verse 32, now they buried the bones of Joseph which the sons of Israels brought up from Egypt at Shechem and the piece of ground which Jacob had brought bought from the sons of Hamor the father of Shechem for 100 pieces of money and they became the inheritance of Joseph's son. Now what this shows for us is that Joseph was a man of faith. And we don't think a whole lot of oh his bones were being buried in the promised land, but think about it from Joseph's perspective. When Joseph was alive, he was in Egypt. He had he had He was not able to see the promised land that God had promised to his father Abraham. And so Joseph is is about to die, and what he does is he asks the people of Israel, or he tells them, demands to them that they must bury his bones in the promised land. They have to carry his bones around with them because he wants to be buried in this land that God had promised. And what it represents for us is that Joseph was a man of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 says, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. He was so confident that God was true to his promise, that God would remain faithful to his people, that he demanded that his bones be buried in this promised land. And then in verse 33, we see the faithfulness of Eleazar. Verse 33 says, And Eleazar the son of Aaron died, and they buried him at Gibeah of Phinehas, his son, which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. This basically serves as a notice of the passing era. Now it was time to pass the torch. Now both Joshua, their leader, and Eleazar, their priest, have died. And it was time for them to pass on the torch. We're going to see next week that that Israel served God for as long as these leaders were alive. They served God throughout Joshua's life and the remaining leaders after Joshua had died. And then in Judges chapter 2 we find out that the next generation of Israel began to stray. They began to wander away from God. But during Joshua's lifetime and even after his death, his followers remained faithful to God. It's an amazing amazing testimony of joshua's faithfulness to god so what extraordinary red sea type experience has god done in your life when is it that god has brought down some walls what has he done for you what type of extraordinary thing has he done well if you are a believer he has saved you and there's nothing more extraordinary than that he sent Jesus Christ to be your sacrifice, your propitiation, your atoning sacrifice. Because you were once blind, you were like Abraham's fathers. You lived on the other side of the river. You were living in a godless society and you had no desire to seek after God. Ephesians 2 says that that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. 1 Corinthians tells us that we were blind. That the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded us from the truth that is in the gospel. We were deaf. We could not hear God's plan for us. We could not understand it. We could not accept it. We were not looking for God. Ephesians 2 also tells us that we formally walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, But then in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, with the love that he loved us, sent Jesus Christ to be our sacrifice, our payment. God is saying, listen, I've worked in some ordinary ways, perhaps, in your life. Maybe you haven't seen something extraordinary, but I have stepped in. I have given you mercy, and if you have have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been freed from the the slavery and the power of sin. You are living under the control of a sin-cursed world and a sin-cursed ruler. And God is saying, But I raised you up, and I seated you in heavenly places with Christ and gave you all the benefits that come with being my child. Your relationship to God is not based on your physical relationship with your parents or some other leader in your life. You don't become a Christian because your parents simply were Christians or because you go to a church or something like that. That's not where we get our relationship to God. Our relationship to God is spiritual. And so it must take place only through God's intervention of us. God standing in our place. See, just like Israel, they were just wandering around in the wilderness, but God intervened. Abraham's parents were just wandering around, doing nothing, not caring about God, but God took Abraham out of there. That's the same thing he did with us. He took us out of the godless lifestyle that we were taking part of, and he brought us into a life with Christ. What a great God we serve. That is the extraordinary thing that God has done in your life. Now, God doesn't always work in that way. God doesn't, he's not going to send down some, some huge bag of money or, or perhaps work in, in a miraculous way in your lifetime again, besides in your salvation. But He will work ordinarily. Do you see God working in your life? When ordinary things happen, do you recognize that that's ultimately God? That when, when, when God aligns certain things in your lives, that is God sovereignly controlling everything in your life, just like he used the hornet to, to destroy the Amorites. We may do something in our lives and take credit for it, but God is saying, listen, that is me. Everything good that happens in your life is a result of me. And you need to give me the praise that I deserve. God is not creating anymore. God is not doing spectacular miracles in our day. We have his word, so we don't need miracles to verify that he is true. He is holding all the stars and planets in place. He is sustaining your life. He's feeding the sparrows. He's watering the earth through this regular cycle. He's, He's doing all these great things that we don't even know about. But God's not just active in the physical world. He's also active in every area of the spiritual realm. He's making his word living and powerful and active. So that when we read it, it it means something to us if we are a believer. It's, It's changing our lives. And God is fulfilling his plan in our lives. He's changing us into the image of Christ. He's removing our grip From the world. God's not up in heaven thinking, oh no, what am I going to do about this difficult situation that my child has gotten himself in? What am I going to do? No, God has it all under control, just as He did with Israel. All these stories don't seem to make sense until we see that God was leading them to follow Him. To be faithful to him so that he could give them the promise that he had for them. In our lives may not make sense. They may never make sense in our lifetime. I mean, think of Joseph. He didn't get to see the promise that God had for him. But we do. We get to see that God was using Joseph to bring out this nation Israel and to lead them to this great land. We may never understand what God is doing in our lives, but we have to trust him. We have to trust him in everything. We have to be faithful to him. No matter how extraordinary, extraordinarily God works or how ordinarily God works, he always works faithfully. So how do we carry on the legacy that, that we have been given by the great leaders before us? Well, we'll see next week primarily that we need, we need to remind ourselves of what God has done for us. That's why we've gone back through Israel's history. Remind ourselves what God has done. So I would urge you to take some time and think about the things that God has done in your life. Maybe you can't see God working as clearly as you once did. So go back and think about those times that God has been faithful to you. And I hope that you'll see that God was in all of that. God was in every aspect of our lives. The great part about Israel is they served God as long as they knew about him. As long as they remembered him. Look at verse 31 one more time. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. And had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done. You see, Israel served them served God as long as Joshua lived and as long as they had known the works of the Lord. That is how we become faithful to God. When we start forgetting about what God has done, we will certainly stray as well. We'll think God's not in this. But as long as we recognize what God has done, that is why we continually go back to the scriptures and look at what God has done. These are the things, these are clearly evidences of God's work. And as long as we remember those, we can be faithful to him. That's what Israel did. So failure to remember God results in unfaithfulness to God. God is looking for ordinary obedience from you. He's not looking for something spectacular where you give up your life and go across the country or the world. Perhaps he may be. But primarily he's looking for ordinary, simple obedience. Will you obey him in what he's given you to do? Will you remember his works? Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven... We thank you for the reminder that you are a great and faithful God, that you deserve all of our praise. And sometimes we are like Israel in that we forget about the things that you have done. Sometimes it's because of our own situation, sometimes it's because we have leaders who have not led us the way we should. But Lord, we pray that you'd help us to take responsibility for ourselves and look to your works and recognize your greatness and as a response to your faithfulness to us that we would be faithful to you. That we would respond in faith like Joseph who not able to see the promise that you not being able to see the promise that you had had for him he had his bones sent on ahead of him. that he could be buried in the land that you had promised help us to be so committed to following you in our faith so confident that we are willing to do whatever it takes to follow you even when it doesn't make sense and we pray this in jesus name amen